McMaster has over 210,000 alumni living in 140 countries around the world. Unconventional will introduce you to some of our alumni who are working to make our world a brighter place in their own unique way. Join me, Karen McQuig, Alumni Director at MAC, as we learn the moments that their path from MAC became unconventional. Joining us today on this episode is Peter Lovelink, whose life story is an embodiment of passion, compassion, and global exploration. Peter's journey after his time at McMaster is a testament to his unwavering commitment to making a positive impact on the world. With a heart for humanitarian work, he dedicated six years of his life to serving marginalized communities in Canada through the Salvation Army. This selfless dedication showcased Peter's compassion and desire to uplift those in need. In 2012, Peter's journey took a transformative turn as he and his wife, both graduates of MAC, embarked on an extraordinary adventure to the Middle East. For eight years, they immersed themselves in diverse cultures and experiences spanning over 80 countries. Peter's boundless spirit of adventure, coupled with a deep-seated commitment to humanitarian causes, led him to where he is today. Currently, he plays a pivotal role in a medical NGO, contributing his expertise to train pediatric surgeons from various parts of Africa. This role underscores Peter's dedication to making a tangible difference in the lives of those in need, showcasing his ability to leverage his skills for the greater good. Peter, your, so for the first question is, why did you choose to come to McMaster? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, of course, in those days, uh, this was mostly done by paper. There was not, we weren't doing a lot online. And we applied to a number of universities. And one of the key reasons was that my wife and I both found programs we're excited about. And we were dating at the time. We wanted to get married and thought we want to go to university together. So we were both excited about the programs. Whereas other places, it just didn't fit for both of us to feel excited. And then the second thing I would say is the sort of physical campus experience was more geographically dense. And it felt like a campus you can wander around on and have a picnic on the park rather than being in the middle of a big city where you just felt like you're going into an office building. So I would say those two things were pretty big factors at the time before we could Google reviews or anything like that. <laughs> I know it makes us feel old. I did everything on paper myself. That right. Yeah, I took my first, first courses were chosen with like a little uh, pencil and, and like a book, a calendar book of things to choose. Yeah. Students today are like, really? I'm like, yeah, actually, we did <laughs> yeah. it by paper. We did right. it by paper. And not that long ago. And not that long ago. So where did you grow up then? A bit of everywhere. Grew up, I was born in Yellowknife, grew up in Germany, lived in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, and then went to high school in Toronto. So when we were, by the time it was time to choose the university, I was coming from Toronto. So we're going to talk a little about your life after McMaster as part of uh, the podcast, but it sounds like the travel bug was in your family. So it's not just you. Is that an accurate assessment right. of? Right. Absolutely. And sometimes that makes you very keen to travel. And sometimes it has the opposite effect. When you move multiple times before your sort of 18th birthday, you, you can sometimes be annoyed by travel. But for me, it worked out that I really was fascinated by different places and knew that I wanted to live and work in other spots on the globe. So when you were considering what you were going to do next um, with your partner post-graduation from Mac, were you someone who had like, I've got my life planned out, I know exactly where I'm going, or were you kind of like, I don't know, I'm going to graduate and see what happens? 
uh, always have a master plan. I would say I'm not more that person. Now that master plan changed perpetually. I think when I signed up to McMaster, I thought I might get into politics. I thought that was the way to change the world. Uh, and so signed up for a, initially a poli-sci degree, but then fell in love with all the ancient history stuff. And so that started to shift it already. I hadn't even graduated, but started to shift it already with the classics department. Um, and by the time so then I debated PhD studies and all these things that many students consider. And I think by the time we finished, the master plan was we've just taken four years for ourselves to, to invest in our own learning and growing. And we both had this sense of like, maybe we ought to spend the same amount of time the next four or five years doing something for other people. And I think that was a big motivator. And we'd already had some international conversations. And so just everything was starting to come together. So our master plan at the time was, I don't know, you know, if we'll ever come back for PhD work or anything like that. But for now, let's find an organization where we feel like we can give back to other people. That was the master plan. And it was mostly a five, 10 year plan at the time. Well, you're much better than I am. I graduated the history degree and thought, okay, now what do I do? But you know, <laughs> so I admire that, Peter. So you seem to be based on um, doing some pre-work for the podcast. You're a, you're a person where faith and service is very important. So your I think your first role after you graduated was working for the Salvation Army in Canada. So can you talk to me a little bit about that role and and what you did and what you took away from that? Yeah, it's an interesting role because, as you say, it was sort of a faith-based organization. So you're motivated by, um, you know, a belief in God and, and things that you can't always touch. Um, but you're also working for a large institution. So you're kind of that's married together. And we went out to Victoria. So then you're also in a very different cultural context than Ontario. Um, Vancouver Island, sort of everyone's sort of kayaking or something to work or <laughs> climbing a mountain before lunchtime. Uh, and so it was really very transformative, I would say, for us as a couple, a young married couple. Um, and we were, you, you know, every day of our lives in, in those years, we're sort of trying to care for other people. And that means you're carrying other people's burdens. And, and that can be a lot. You know, we all go through difficult things. And so we were a very young couple trying to help people and that's 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 not always easy but we found it really fulfilling and sense that like even when you when you follow it with people who we knew some 20 years ago in those days and you hear where they're at now it's just incredible to see how lives continue to transform you you're there for a moment of someone's life and i think particularly when you're helping someone through long-term challenges you don't always get to see the end product, certainly, especially if you're there for the beginning conversations. So it's been really wonderful to keep in touch with some people and see how lives have continued to evolve, if I can put it that way. Um, so yeah, I I found, I guess in short, it's just wonderful to be able to be in a season or organization where we could do things that we felt passionate about that aligned with our vision and values about the world and how people are made uh, and do something that felt like it mattered. You know, like um, by us showing up to work, other people's lives hopefully were made better. That was sort of the premise, I guess, when you're working in an organization like that. And and it included a, such a broad range of things, everything from uh, public speaking, as you could imagine, a pastor talking on Sunday about things they care about, uh, but then also working with people in profound addictions, um, community garden projects, toy lending libraries, um, unhoused people projects, just such a range uh, which particularly as a young couple was probably really helpful for us to just see so many different ways of what it means to engage in people's lives and how to hopefully make the world better. 
And nonprofit work is not easy, right? So often, I mean, I've worked in nonprofit before I came to, to McMaster. And, you know, oftentimes, you know, you worked for a large organization, so it's a little bit different. But, you know, it's sometimes you're not sure, are you going to get funding? Is the donor base going to support? You're you're working with people who have many challenges, depending what organization you're working um, with. Yeah. But it's it's completely rewarding work, which you, I think people can mm-hmm. tell by listening to you, your talk about your time at the Salvation Army in Canada. But what would you say to a, a student who's thinking about, do I go to the private sector or I really think I'm going to go nonprofit uh, route when I graduate? What yeah. what case would you make for them to, to choose the nonprofit? Right. Obviously, both have their benefits, as people would rightly know. Uh, one of the nice things about certain private sector is you can punch out at a certain time and it doesn't matter. You don't have to care that much, right? Depending on what organization you work for, you don't actually have to care deep inside of your heart. You can do good work. And at four o'clock or five o'clock, you can walk away. Um, and I think that's very difficult in the nonprofit sector. You just get your heart just gets so engaged in the work that you're doing, which means that all day it's good work and you're passionate about it, but it doesn't, you don't turn it off as easily. So regardless, even if you find a nonprofit job, you think, oh, the funding is pretty good, or I don't have to chase donors, and you think, oh, this is going to be great. It is very difficult to unplug your heart at four or five in the afternoon and, and be able to go home. So it becomes kind of much more like 24 seven work. I think a lot in the nonprofit world, just because you're excited about it, which means every one of those hours can be really exciting. And there's just a lot of them. That's what I would say. So I don't know if I've convinced anyone to join nonprofit work, but uh, I guess (laughs) maybe to back up a little bit is to say, if if that's what gets you excited, you want to do things you're passionate about, it does come at a cost, but that is rewarding to, to know that what you do matters and without you, you know, there can be an increased level of suffering in the world. And so whatever small way you can participate, if you do want to see the world made better, there's so many spaces in, in the big umbrella of nonprofit work. Not all of it is about chasing donors or being worried about funds. There's so many different roles. Um, and I would encourage people if they care about those things that at least do it as we did for a couple of years, uh, just out of university. That's a great way to, to find out what you care about in the world. Did you find some things that worked for you? Because the work that you did, you would have taken home 24-7. So what sort of strategies worked for you? We tried to sort of have a day off a week. Um, And I know some people get two days a week, but this was like the kind of work is with people. And so we try to ensure there's a day a week where we really couldn't be reached by anyone at work. uh, So we could really unplug and go for walks or hikes or whatever else. Um, we also, when you work with people and, and there's complex challenges you're facing, you have so little control in life. Like you can't say, we're, this is a project we're going to get done today. Like if I'm a, an accountant, I might be able to say, I can get this, this set of numbers crunched today. Or, or if I'm a carpenter, I might be able to build. And I know what I'm capable of. I could build that desk today or course of the week. Um, and when you're working with people, you, you have no control over how other people respond. So something else I think that was valuable for us is having like side projects that had control. So we were involved in a number of renovation projects. And those I felt gave balance because it's like, we're going to start laying this floor and I have the power to get it done. And we can guarantee that it's going to happen. And that's not the case when you're in kind of like social work type roles where you you work alongside people and it might be 20 years and you might not still be there when they finally get to a place that they're trying to get to. Right. I think that's a really good uh, tip. And I think about that because you do feel some sense of accomplishment when you actually finish something and the work that you've done in many places, it's, you know, it is, it's the long game, right? You might not actually be there to see that person make the 
the last step in their journey. And that, yeah. that could be difficult. Finding things that you can control just helps create a bit of balance, even if it's still work. It's just something that um, gives you a sense of accomplishment some days, I think is really meaningful. So after your time at the Salvation Army, you headed off to the Middle East. So something yes. completely different. Yeah. Um, so what made you think you wanted to do that and, and, and talk a little bit about your time over there? Right. So as you said at the outset, uh, I was already biased towards working internationally. And so um, in some ways, that wasn't a surprise. I think we knew it was time to, to leave what we were doing. So we were open to really anything. But the international was sort of always calling. Um, and actually, we had been on vacation to visit friends uh, in Kuwait um, a couple of years before. We went there. Um, They're friends of ours from the West Coast. And, we're, and I remember walking around. And I don't know if you or others do this, but anytime you visit a new city, whether it be locally or internationally, my wife and I would be like, yeah, I think we could live here. You know, like what, what would that look like? And you sort of almost role play this sense of, could this be done? What would this look like? We've done that all over the world, but we did that when we were wandering around in Kuwait that time, years before we moved there. And then you kind of come back into your normal work, everything went back to normal. And so when we came to that moment of I think we're looking for something new and we're looking for jobs within North America. We're looking for jobs overseas. And that moment of wandering around uh, thinking we could live here is like, could we <laughs> like, well, maybe this could be real. And so started reaching out to friends and felt like the experience that we had so far might equip us well for that. And um, so we just, we jumped at it and, and <laughs> a dramatic shift from a very green Vancouver Island to a very dry and hot Middle East. And how were your first few months there? I mean, I imagine it's it's a little bit daunting in some way, right? Like language, mm. culture. Yeah. You know, even as you said, like green, the green of Vancouver and rain to a, to a desert. So, yeah. you know, how did you manage that? I, th I think we'd gone in with the expectation that culture shock for almost everyone is real and unavoidable and something you deal with, uh, rather than thinking it's all going to be this exotic foreign adventure for our entire lives. Uh, there's a sense of realism to say uh, it's not everything in the world is simple. And so just get over it and understand that's going to be the case. And uh, if a country like that is recruiting people with relatively high salaries to try to incentivize people to come, that's probably because there's challenges there that you're going to need to face. Um, and so I think we tried to go with as eyes wide open as possible to understand that um, there's there's always a flip side to things you don't know until you get into it. And uh, and so when those things came up, I think we tried to handle um, whatever challenges came our way with, uh, with again, a sense of openness is like, it's still kind of an honor and a privilege to be here. We're, we're being paid here to get jobs. Not everyone in the world has an easy time finding work. And so a sense of, um, this is a privilege to be able to work somewhere. And so that, I think, I think we we're also together. I have to say that that made a difference talking to other friends who live there. Um, you need a sense of community. And if you have a partner in some way, you have built in community. And mm -hmm. I think it was a lot harder to handle the culture shock stuff for our friends who um, didn't come with either a friend or a partner of any kind um, so that made the transition just a bit smoother. And also living in the Middle East, you you had a lot of uh, vacation time. And so um, it was like, you know, we don't have to think about doing this for 10 years or even one year. Let's just work hard for two months. And then there's there's a chance for us to go explore the world. And so there's all these mini carrots along the way that allowed us to slowly fall in love with the place. So you did take an opportunity with your vacation time to to get that passport full of different stamps and, and uh, experiences. So is that where you really 
decided that you were going to see more of the world than you probably thought maybe when you were in Vancouver Island. Because I yeah. believe, if I'm accurate, you've seen 80 plus countries. So I'm sure you have many stories and experiences. But was it being over there then, and the proximity that said, okay, now we got to go explore all kinds of different parts of the world? I think broadly speaking, the desire was always there, but the opportunity just wasn't. To get off Vancouver Island, you're either taking a ferry or paying for a flight. And as any of our Canadian listeners know, flights within Canada are not uh, cheap. So to go from a place where it's like, well, this for me to fly to Ethiopia is the same price as it would have been for me to fly to Calgary. So like this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. Let's do it. And then three months later, there's another once in a lifetime opportunity. And so there are places that were never on our bucket list, but were convenient or were close. And so bit by bit, we'd go to all these incredible places and then we'd come back and you'd share stories with people and they'd say, oh, you know, it sounds like you'd love this place. I'm like, oh, put that next month. I'll go there. Um, it was this really surreal experience of living in a space where so many people were traveling internationally and international travel was far more affordable than it was for me in Canada. And we were now we had gone from working in the nonprofit sector where your salaries are somewhat or significantly less than the average person to going to work for a, a private school in a relatively wealthy country uh, with no taxes and lots of vacations. So we suddenly were in a different experience. And so again, that sense of we won't be here forever. Let's savor it. And bit by bit, country after country, we ended up going to a lot, as you said, some 80 plus. Most of those were done while we lived in Kuwait for those eight years. Uh, we had been to a few before, but uh, almost every one of those 85 were visited during that um, eight years. Wow. I think we sometimes forget as Canadians actually how big our country is. And we, you know, we collectively complain about the air flight, but when we really think about right. it, it takes a long time. When you're coming right. over from Europe and you hit St. John's, you're like, oh, I'm in Canada. Nuts. I still have like four hours to go. <laughs> so, well, and, and that's a very good point because for you could, living in Hamilton, for example, say, I'm going to jump on a four hour flight. Where can I get to? Uh, there's parts of Canada you still cannot get to. Yeah. But a four hour flight out of Kuwait, which is also a lot less money, but even just the amount of time, you can get to a dozen plus countries to explore. And so that really meant, you know, you've got an opportunity, savor it. So if you had to pick, I don't know, one, let's say one or two places that stood out in your travels, what, what would they be yeah. and why? I like the Himalayas. Um, we went to the first time in Nepal, up the sort of the early part of the Everest base camp trek. And then later in um in the Everest base camp in the Chinese side, in Tibet, and then uh, also in North India. And there's just something really wonderful about these really harsh climates uh, and such interesting, historic, profound cultures that are just thriving. Like you'd have these tiny little monasteries and you think, how does anyone get here? Like you're on the top of a mountain. Um, you can barely, particularly as a Westerner, you can barely walk up some of these mountains without support. And then there's just a monastery where some person in a robe is praying and you're thinking, or a school, and you're thinking, how do we get here? There's just this profound and dramatic connection between like human society and culture and really difficult um like geographic settings um so i really like those places that the himalayas really were some of my favorite and i do like going back to um the black forest region i grew up there so i that's an absolute bias i know why i liked going back there but just the the borders between france and germany 
it's a region that has swapped passports a number of times, um, just as wars have come and gone. And so there's this interesting cultural fusion between very, two very different cultures that's produced a third very different culture. Um, so I really love exploring that area. And again, that part is a lot to do with my bias of growing up there and having a sense of nostalgia. So out of our time, the Himalayas, and also just places like Jordan. If you've never been to Jordan, that's an incredible spot where you've got deserts and uh, fresh oases and beautiful food. Just really incredible spots to explore. Well, I think I have to get my passport out and figure out the next place I'm going to go. Get some stamps. Yeah, get my get some stamps. Um, did COVID make you come home or were you already back in Canada by the time the pandemic hit? That's a good question and a complicated one. We were uh, we had intended to come back to Canada in June of 2020 and happened to be in February of 2020 at a, a conference in Florida. And I, after 80 something co countries, you pack very light, single backpack and you know very few items. So we're at a conference and the last week of February and by the last day of February where we were meant to fly back to Kuwait, um, the school closed down for two weeks. They said, listen, COVID has taken over two weeks. We should be able to handle it. So stay put. Don't come. So we redirected to Canada, not dressed at all for, you know, February 29th or whatever it was. Um, and that was actually the day I'd started working with this new medical organization. I thought I was going to be doing that remotely from Kuwait for four months. Um, and so we started that two weeks later, our flights were canceled. The airports were now closed. A couple of weeks later, you realize, I don't think we're ever getting back home to Kuwait. Yeah. And so we started talking to our friends who were there saying, would you pack up our belongings? We've got a spare key, go into our house, put it all on a sea container. Cause there's a good chance we're never getting home. And then as the months passed, realized, right, we never did. And so June, when we thought we we're going to come back, we were still here um, and never did make it back to what was home for so long. So it was a it was a difficult transition as other people were like, oh, we're, um, you know, sheltering in place and watching a lot of Netflix. And we we're like staying in uh, family members, like a, a retirement condo and working off borrowed laptops at living out of a backpack because we were sort of stranded for a few months. Um, it made for a really difficult transition because you sort of hope to say goodbye to people, places, and things, and that never happened. We just left uh, for a week, which has become, you know, three years. Three years. Well, it's kind of like a sense of loss, right? You don't get to go back. It's just suddenly that part of your life is gone. Yeah. And one of the things about Kuwait, it's like many of the Gulf countries, about two thirds of the population are expats, right. uh, foreigners of some kind with no past immigration. So they don't move there permanently. They stay there three, four, five, ten years. So even if we went back today, so many of the people we knew are gone. So the, the, the space that we remember is not there. So it's not like you can just go back and say your farewells. Society and culture moves on without you, it turns out. Um, and so you just have to accept that sometimes you don't get to say goodbye. So as you just briefly mentioned, when you uh, you were thinking about doing a remote job working for Bethany and Kids, um, which you're now executive director of. Uh, so why don't you talk to us a little bit about that? Because you're based in Canada, but you're still providing you know care to another part of the world. That's right. Yeah, I didn't go far from the international work. I think having worked for the Salvation Army for years and then in an international school for years, I, I, throughout that time, I went back to school and did um, a number of master's degrees, one of which was in international development or community development, social justice. And so I knew I had this desire to go back to this space of working to try. To, I'd done it with school. I thought I did my best to help make lives for these children better and still sense that I think I'd like to use my skills and experience to help make the world better in whatever minor way that I could. And um 
while we were in Kuwait, I, I started a communications company that was working for nonprofits. And it was at that time that I came across Bethany Kids. We, uh, my partner, uh, business partner, uh, was doing photography and had taken all these beautiful photos of Bethany Kids. And I remember seeing those photos and thinking, why haven't I heard of this organization? Like, this is profound. This is incredible. Um, and so in that, uh, I guess in 2019, when we started thinking about coming back to Canada, I thought, I feel like this is an organization I would love to work for. And when I saw they were posting a role to work with them, I was like, I've got to chase it with everything I have in me um, to, to be part of this work. In fact, uh, when I went to, there was three or four rounds of interviews. When I went to the final round of interviews, I printed these like 20 page brochures, uh, setting out a potential vision for the organization that if they were to hire me, uh, this is how we could go together, including everything from a brand revision to just strategic plans, just everything in there. I was like every possible chance I can put to, to secure this job, which felt like a dream job. Um, I wanted to chase. And so that was part of that transition. I had sort of known about it and then, um, and was already doing some remote support for them. Um, the job now, of course, as you say, it's, it's entirely remote. We have offices in Canada, the U S and the UK, which I'm a part of, but there's no buildings. There's no buildings anywhere in North America. We spend our brick and mortar money in Africa. And for those listeners who've never heard of it, let me briefly explain, we train pediatric surgeons. Um, and so we train those surgeons out of a hospital in Kenya. And then when they go back to their home country, in many cases, there is no pediatric surgeon in the entire country. And so we are the first or second pediatric surgeon in the entire country. And, um, and then we support their salaries. We pay a good portion of every one of these surgeon salaries. And so every year as we train new surgeon, it's been growing. So when I came in 2020, it was in five countries. Later this year, it will be in eight and next year, nine. Not because I'm here. Obviously, I'm not the surgeon. I'm not the one training all these new fabulous human beings. Um, but just being part of a, an organization growing like that, that is training locally, that is supporting local human resources from the continent of Africa, just excited me. And it also meant that, you know, when you're looking for a space of saying like, how do my skills align? Like, what value can I bring to an organization? And I thought, well, I've worked with nonprofits, so I understand budgets and fundraising. I've done a lot of public speaking, both uh, with the Salvation Army and as a school teacher. So you're always in front of a room. So I thought, and then I had done communication, so graphic design, website. And I thought, if I can pool all those resources and come along people who have a different set of resources, surgeons and, and healthcare providers, then maybe I can use my voice or skills to elevate their cause. And so that's that's been the case, and that's been for me, exciting to feel like uh, I get to work alongside some of the smartest people on the planet. And I don't have to be as smart as them because I can hopefully bring something different. I don't have to speak Swahili or be a pediatric surgeon because I'm not the one working within Africa. I have to be able to speak the language of fundraising and try to find people who get excited about that and transfer their funds across the, across the world. So I'm curious about the name. Where did Bethany Kids come from? Is there a story behind that? That, yeah, good question. Thank you for asking that one. Um, so Bethany was actually the daughter of that first surgeon who started this work. And the premise in his head was everyone who comes to our, our clinics, uh, many of them are coming with more than just a, a medical condition because there's a lot of stigma and taboo around children living with disabilities. Many of the patients we treat were born into a situation where they were viewed as a curse or someone who doesn't belong. And so there's this sense of not having family and not mattering. And our first surgeon, and he was, again, deeply motivated by a sense of faith, believed that 
Uh, if we're really to take the teachings of Jesus seriously, then every human being, whether they look like us or not, we should see them as our brother or sister or son or daughter. And so uh, he, his own kid was named Bethany, and he thought every child who comes to our hospitals, every child that we provide care for, we want them to know that they're loved like we would love our own kids. Uh, and so that was kind of, I guess, uh, an inside joke or something for himself to say, this is who we are. We are people that take care of kids at that level of like familial love. Um, and that has, I think, defined the organization ever since. So not everyone knows that's where the story comes from, but that's what the, that's what the name means for us. Oh, that's a lovely story. And so how often do you get to go to Africa? Like, are you over once or twice right. a year or are you kind of like, I'm stuck here in Canada? <laughs> you would you would think I travel there a lot. And, and my job, I guess, could allow me to travel there more frequently. And for someone who loves international travel, it would be very easy for me to justify a lot of trips. The reality is, though, the only time I've been there with Bethany kids was before I started working for them. I visited one of the sites just to see and kind of fill my heart with what this work was doing. When I lived in Kuwait, that was that just before that earlier in February of 2020. Um, most people in this role and organizations, it seems like it's two trips a year that they take to the partner countries. But we're a small organization and money only goes so far. And so when I look at a flight across the continent or across continents, uh, across the ocean, and I think that's $3,000, that's a number of children who could get surgery. And so I do a lot of travel, but it's not to Africa. It's to anywhere that will have me come and speak and share and any possible chance I can get some money. So I've been from everywhere from like Coeur d'Alene, Idaho to I was in Windsor two weeks ago and St. Catharines last week, going to be in Ottawa, Peterborough, uh, Florida, Tennessee, like anywhere in North America that I think there's a chance for me to go speak, share about this work. So I do a lot of travel. And despite being an African charity, uh, where our only building is in Africa, all of my travel is to random provinces and states around North America to, to fundraise. Uh, and I think that's just part of how I've aligned my job. It didn't have to be that way. Um, but I, I just keep thinking about how hard my colleagues in Africa work. And I think aside from being there, as a, hopefully to encourage, what purpose do I have there? If I trust them, if we have procedures and systems in place to ensure accountability, then where is the value add for me to show up? aside from a handshake and a photo op, it would be a joy for me. Like I would love it. I like travel, but I think that my time and especially Bethany kids money is better spent me finding more money and sending it across the world. So that's how I've organized my work. Oh, okay. Well, that's interesting. And so it also maybe comes into your, your goal of you've, you've spent, you know, you have a huge passport with lots of stamps and whatnot. You you know, have a, a young person in your family now, a that's little right. person, yeah. right. That yeah. will keep you a little bit more attached to home. <laughs> um, and you're, maybe spending a little time figuring out your own little community, right? Versus actually traveling the world. That's right. And part of coming back to Canada is like, I don't have a hometown in Canada. And so how do I slowly find a hometown slash make a hometown? And how do I use my time and energy? Because some people sign up to an international development agency because they want to travel. Well, the, tr the reality is I've traveled. I'm good. And my cup of travel is full. Uh, but my desire to serve other people is still something that's uh, strong. Also, my desire to find a home in Canada and really see, feel that sense of home. As someone who grew up moving all over, that's not something that comes easy. Um, so, yeah, certainly when it comes to spending my time, we do a lot more of that. It's a lot cheaper. We'll take a, a trailer, hitch it to our car and go to places and, and travel. That's a lot cheaper than getting on a flight. So we're still having uh, family adventures. They look a lot different now. Right. So where do you see yourself in 
professionally in five to 10 years? Like, what do you think's next for you? I hope to, I've only been with him three years. So I hope that I'm here in 10 years. I'll say that. I really hope that I can be part of this season of growth within the organization and be able to do what I can to support these people. Um, and I know this organization will, will take different forms and shapes and maybe the structure of leadership will change. I don't know what my exact job will be. Um, right now I have uh, I work with the different boards. And so I, I, I don't know what exactly my job will be. I just hope I get to be part of what's happening here. I love the, some behind the scenes, the graphic design stuff. I love telling stories for Bethany kids. So I hope I just get to keep doing that. Um, and I hope to uh, eventually do a bit more international travel. Uh, I think it'd be really beautiful. And something in the back of my head is that we have three funding countries right now, Canada, the U.S., and the U.K. Um, and back of my head, and maybe this is selfish, but I think this is also professional goals, is to spend a couple months in Europe at some point over the coming years and open up a fourth funding office in a country that has financial capacity to share and try to get people excited and motivated about this cause. Um, so that that is a possibility to, to spend a couple months abroad again. Um, but it's hard to say for sure. All I know right now, I feel committed to this work and I, I don't want to leave it. I want to see it through. And that could be 10 years, that could be 20 years. The world can change, but right now I'm just in love with the organization and the work I get to do. Well, I think... That's a great answer, because if you really do find what you love, it's hard to think about what your next step is. You just see right. growing in the role and growing yeah. the organization. So I that's think right. that I think that's great. And as you said at the beginning, like you, we, I still have master plans yep. and, and, you know, we all have those. And when I left university, you have a master plan. And even at the outside of university, you had a master plan. And so I still have those in my head. And right now it entirely includes seeing how Bethany kids can grow and raising a family in Canada and all of those things. None of my master plan so far includes a change of, of organizations. And so, you know, things can change. My master plans changed a dozen times already. But right now, I feel just so in love with this organization and feel really privileged to be able to serve it. So if we were to go back to your graduation day, what, what yeah. piece of advice do you wish that you would tell yourself uh, on that moment when you were leaving McMaster? That's a really good question. And it's a hard one because I'm aware that most people don't listen to good advice. Um, <laughs> that is true. <laughs> like I'm sure people gave me all sorts of advice on my graduation day and I probably forgot most of it. So it's hard to say what would actually stick to, even to my younger self, like what, what could I listen to? Um, but I think the, the tone, of even what, what we've been talking about is just doing things that you actually enjoy and that, that make the world better. I think that you'll find the greatest joy when those two things overlap. And there's a Venn diagram that's perpetually shifting. But if you can get in that space of doing something you're good at or you enjoy and that makes people's lives better, that's a space to stay for as long as possible. Um, and I'm thankful that every job I've had since leaving McMaster has allowed me to do that in different ways over time. Um, so I was in my biggest advice would be to, to do something you care about, uh, and that you have some skills in, because it, it's a lot easier to enjoy work when you have a capacity to do the job. Right. So as we get close to the end of our time on unconventional podcasts with you, we usually like to ask some wrap up questions at the end, sort of rapid fire ones. So let's, uh, let's segue to that. So your sure. favorite memory of McMaster. Um, I think it's actually after I left, we, my wife and I've gone back a few times to have like picnics on the lawn at McMaster, even after we stopped being students, like anniversaries. And, and it's just kind of reaffirms all those beautiful memories as we talk about all the times. Um, 
beyond that, I would say like studying for exams, as weird as that sounds, it's just like what a privileged place to sit around and chat about things that you chose to talk about and you care about. And I had such a good time studying with friends. It's, I know it's nerdy, but I enjoyed it. That's okay. Um, some of my favorite times were in Mills Library on the in the reading room, which was actually not a reading room, just a social room at the time. It was a social room. <laughs> yeah. Those big tables didn't yeah. seem designed for private. Uh, they seem designed for group discussion. Exactly. I yeah, I think so too. Um, what book are you reading right now? Right. So this is an interesting one. A friend of mine wrote a book uh, last year, and he biked from Belgium to Nepal to raise money for some different charity. And I'm reading that book, and it's so interesting because I know who he is. I talk with him. I hang out with him. And I love adventure and travel and nonprofit work. So I'll tell you the name. It was called Farther Than the Sun Can See by Joel Friesen. And it's just a dynamic book. It's really brilliant. It's not on the, uh, a huge bookseller's list, but I'm sure if you find it on Amazon or, or independent bookseller in Canada, you'll find it. It's a great book. Excellent. Um, what living person do you most admire? Um, my wife, I think she's incredible. I think we've been together since before we went to Mac. So some 20 plus years married for 17 and just, I think the most caring person I've ever met, um, someone who comes across as very, um, focused and, and disciplined and efficient, but her heart is so big for other people. And so I just, I think she's wonderful. Okay, so I got to ask, what grade did you meet? We met, um, we were one grade apart, so it must have been like grade 10 or something, grade 9, 10. We met, no, before that, we were 14 and 15 when we met. We started dating 16 and 17, and then so eventually went to Mac together for four years, so all of that time uh, together. So yeah, I guess we met grade, is it grade 10? No, something like that. Grade eight, yeah. grade nine, somewhere in there. I don't know. So that's <laughs> so unusual. That's so unusual. So did did you know right away? Did you ask her out? Did she ask you out? Or did you have to did you have to pursue? Because our 14-year-old selves is very different from our 19 and 20-year-old yes. selves. Right. <laughs> I I would say we we knew each other for two years. And I think we both thought, hey, I think we're probably gonna get married. But but that conversation didn't really publicly happen in any way. We just knew each other and then started dating two years after we met. Um, and it was a matter of months before we both publicly said to each other, I think we're getting married. So let's just, and we're very, um, task oriented kind of pragmatic people. So it was like, all right, so we'll go to, we've got two years left of high school and then four years of university. And then we'll get married after that. Let's just, uh, and people, you know, who are more driven by emotions in the moment are like, well, why don't you get married now? You love each other. And you're like, well, because we're efficient and pragmatic, and this is the most financially reasonable way to go. So we're going to yeah. get married when we graduate. <laughs> Smart. Um, and then I'm going to, the last question I'll ask you today is what's your idea of perfect happiness? Um, I think part of it is the contentment, like sort of sitting in these moments where you've worked towards something and you've got this pause of like, what I'm doing matters or significant or special. And there's a mix of both the pause uh, of like sitting on the top of a mountain or getting to the end of a strategic plan or teaching a year of school. There's the pause, but it's also filled with the memories that preceded immediately. And there's just like, wow, that was good. Now, if you stay in that pause too long, it's, it's you start to, it's no longer this true sense of happiness. But I think there's, there's a mix of what led to the moment. And then those moments of like breathing and being like, wow, this is a great week, month or year, like something special is happening on part of it. And, and that brings me joy. And I've taken time to like, to just rest and appreciate. And I, I feel like that's the times I've been happiest.
Well, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on our podcast. And it, I think it's most interesting, you know, you studied classics at McMaster. So you studied the ancient world and then you've right. taken upon yourself to discover the the contemporary world, the present right. day. So yeah. that's an interesting way to take a, a course that most people might say, why would anybody study classics anymore? But, you know, to begin those, those thoughts and those, um, you know. I highly know. recommend so many people to take classics because there's the pursuit of mystery. Yeah. Um, and you don't know, I can't say everything about classics because it's a world of 2000 plus years ago. I don't know exactly what happened, but I can find the little pieces and draw them together. And there's this sort of detective experience and appreciation of what's come before. So you have both a sense of, can I add something to this body of knowledge and this excitement for the mystery of this detective work, but also a profound appreciation for what's come before. And I think that develops a great posture uh, in society to appreciate where you've been and also be excited about what's to come. So anyone who's studying, please take classics courses. They, they were profound and transformative. Excellent. And we'll keep an eye on you as we watch to see what happens with Bethany kids and see what happens over the next number of years. And, you know, in 10 years, we'll give you a call. If I'm still working, I may be retired, but maybe they'll still have me doing this podcast. We'll check in and see if you're still there. That'd be a delight. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you.